The Old Testament reading for today is Exodus 20, verses 12 through 17. Uh, Here we are reading again the second table of the Ten Commandments, the, the law of God. And then for the New Testament reading, we will go to Mark 7, 14 through 23. Exodus 20, 12, Mark 7, 14. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let us go now to Mark 7, 14. We'll read through verse 23. Mark seven fourteen. He, that is Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that is going into him that can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for... From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, that is to say an evil eye, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Throughout our consideration of the Ten Commandments, I have stressed that these commandments are to be kept from the heart. This is true of all of them. All of God's laws are to be kept not superficially, but heartily. If we are to keep God's law really and truly, then we must do what He has commanded and not do what He has forbidden with love in our hearts for God and for our fellow man. Again, this is true of each one of the Ten Commandments. They're to be kept from the heart. And of course, when I speak of the heart, I speak not of that muscle which pumps blood through our veins, but rather of the inner life of man, that is to say, the soul. And the point is this, God wants your heart. He is not interested in empty rituals or superficial devotion performed with the body only. No, instead God is to be worshipped and served with the whole of our beings, body and soul. This is why the Ten Commandments are boiled down to these two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These verses here help us to see that the Ten Commandments, indeed the whole of God's law, is to be kept with love in the heart for God and for our fellow man. And I want for you to consider these three things about the heart, brothers and sisters. First of all, God sees the heart. God sees the heart. You may be able to fool your fellow man for a time with external, that is to say bodily obedience to God's law, while hiding the truly sinful condition of your heart, but you cannot fool God. God sees our souls as clearly as He hears our words and sees our actions. Two, our actions, that is to say the words that we speak and the deeds that we do, flow from the heart. This is what Jesus was talking about in that passage we just read from Mark. The things that we say, the the things that we do... They flow from the heart. And here I am talking about how human behavior works. Why do we say what we say? Why do we do what we do? Have you ever stopped to ask that question? Where does, where does all of this come from? Where do these words of mine come from? Where does this behavior of mine come from? Where does this attitude come from even? It, it, it emanates from, from the heart. We, we speak and we act from the heart. The heart, in other words, is the spring from which the life of man flows. Does that sound biblical? It is biblical. Christ talked about this. It's stated elsewhere in the scriptures too. The heart is the spring from which the life of man flows. Three, Christ renews the hearts of those who have faith in Him. This is the third thing that I want to tell you about the heart in the introduction to this sermon Christ renews the hearts of those who have faith in Him. We call this regeneration. We also call this sanctification. When God graciously calls a sinner to Himself through Christ and by His Word, He regenerates them to make them willing and able to believe by His Holy Spirit. He opens their spiritual eyes and unstops their spiritual ears so that they can see the glory of Christ and hear His gospel call inwardly to the saving of their souls. He takes the heart of stone, which is hard because of sin, and gives them a new heart, one that is soft to Him and to the things of Him. He renews their mind. He renews their will. He renews their affections so that they are able to believe and confess Jesus as Lord. We call this gracious work of God regeneration. It happens at the very beginning, even before faith. This is what it means to be born again. Again, this happens before faith. It must, for in our natural and fallen condition, we are dead in our sins. And if we are to live to God by faith, He must breathe life into us. He must renew our hearts. And we know that God does also sanctify us progressively by His Word and Spirit. Corruptions remain in us, but God has promised to finish the work He has started in us. You may see Philippians 1.6 about that. So then God sees the heart, our words and actions flow from the heart, and God is concerned to renew the hearts of all His elect in Christ by His Word and Spirit. I say these things in the introduction to this sermon on the Tenth Commandment because the Tenth Commandment is very much about the heart or soul of man. We must keep our hearts, brothers and sisters. That will be the exhortation that you ultimately hear today. We must keep 
our hearts before the Lord if we hope to obey Him and live to the glory of His name. And in fact, I wish to say a bit more about human behavior here in this introduction. How does human behavior work? Again, I ask, why do we say what we say? And why do we do what we do with our bodies? In our consideration of the Ten Commandments, aren't we talking about behavior? These are the things that we're to say and do before the Lord as it pertains to our worship of Him and our relationship to our fellow man. Aren't we concerned now with human behavior? How do we live wholly before God? I think here it is right for us to stop and to ask the question, well, how does human behavior work? Why do we say what we say and do what we do with our bodies? That is to say, with our tongues, with our other parts. Why do we say what we say and do what we do? It is an important question to ask. If we wish to obey God, brothers and sisters, we must understand something of the way that human behavior works. First of all, it must be acknowledged that we choose to say what we say and do what we do. We choose to say what we say and do what we do. We have a will, in other words. We have this ability to make choices. We choose to think upon certain things. We choose to say things. We choose to do things. We have a will. Every human being does. Why do we say what we say and do what we do? Well, because we make choices. And here I am saying, if we wish to obey God in word and in deed, then we had best develop strong wills. We had best develop strong wills. There is a place for willpower, brothers and sisters. There is something to be said for self-control. Now, if you were to go and read Galatians 5, 22 through 23, that is that passage where Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, you would see that Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit concludes with self-control. Self-control. We must develop willpower or self-control in Christ Jesus if we hope to keep God's law in word and in deed. Now please do not misunderstand me. I fear being misunderstood at this point. I really do. This is not independent willpower that I speak of, but willpower that depends always upon the strength of God. This is no self-reliant self-control that I speak of, but self-control that relies on the grace of God given to us through Christ and by His Spirit. Paul spoke of self-control. It concluded his list of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, This is the thing that the Spirit of God must produce within us through regeneration, through sanctification, As God's Spirit uses the Word of God to refine us and to produce these righteous and holy fruits within us, self-control is one of them. But it is self-control nonetheless. Please don't miss this. It is self-control nonetheless. To put it bluntly, when we are tempted to say or to do that which is evil, either by the evil one himself by the world around us, or by the corruptions that remain within us, we must have the willpower 
or self-control to choose that which is good and to flee from that which is evil. There is something to be said for self-control. You know, in the Reformed tradition, of which we are a part, there is a great deal of stress placed upon the inability of man and of man's need for the grace of God. There is also a great deal of stress placed upon the need for heart transformation. If we hope to obey God, we must be changed to the core of us. Our, our affections must be renewed by the Word and Spirit. And I agree with all of that. It is right that we place a great deal of stress upon these truths. In fact, we are going to return to these truths in a moment. The majority of this sermon will be about those things. Heart transformation is needed, brothers and sisters. Our affections must be changed. Yes, that is true. But here, I wish to emphasize that it is not only our affections that need to be sanctified in Christ Jesus, but also our wills. Our wills need to be sanctified too. Our wills need to be strengthened by the grace of God through Christ and by His Spirit. Perhaps you have noticed that I have begun to identify different parts or faculties in the soul of man. We have bodies, and our bodies are composed of parts. Everyone knows that. It's plain, it's evident. But we also have souls. These are the two parts of man. We have bodies and we have souls. Every human being is made in the image of God and has a body and a soul. And here I am saying that our souls have parts. It is important for us to understand what the parts of man's soul are and how they function together if we wish to understand how it is that we come to speak and act as we do with our bodies. Body and soul are related, aren't they? Indeed, they're very much intertwined. We live in God's world as body and soul. We perceive the world around us through the physical parts of our bodies. We see with eyes. We smell with noses. We touch with skin. We taste with buds. We hear with ears. All of that sensation is processed by a physical brain. Our bodies are amazingly complex, aren't they? They're very complex. But we are not merely physical, brothers and sisters. We are not merely physical. We are also spiritual. In the beginning, God formed man from the dust. And then what did He do? He breathed into him the breath of life. So there we see the two parts of man, body and soul. We are spiritual creatures. We have souls, brothers and sisters. These souls of ours are not material. They are not visible. They're immaterial. They're invisible. So you cannot cut a man open to examine his soul. An x-ray machine will not detect it. And though it is true that we experience the sensations we encounter in the world around us through our physical parts, in fact, we think rationally with the mind, we are drawn towards or driven away from things by our affections, and we make choices with our wills. These three things together, the mind, the will, and the affections, make up the soul of man. They are the invisible parts of man. They cannot be examined with the eye, but their fruit can be observed. 
Because it is from the mind, the affections, and the will that men and women speak and men and women do. First of all, consider the mind. It is with the mind that we process and interpret the world around us and all that we experience therein. It is with the mind that we think. It is with the mind that we reason. It is with the mind that we come to certain conclusions and hold to certain beliefs. Now that we are fallen into sin, it is imperative that we be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. We must submit our minds to God's Word. We must believe the truths He has revealed. The mind is a part, not of the body, but of the soul. The mind is graciously renewed by God at regeneration, enabling sinners to believe the truth of the Gospel. And the mind is progressively sanctified by God's Word and Spirit, as He graciously enables those who have faith in Christ to grow in the knowledge of the truth. The brain is physical. It is a part of the physical body, but the mind is spiritual, it is soulish, it is a part of the soul of man. Secondly, consider the affections. It is through the affections that we are moved towards that which we perceive to be good and away from that which we perceive to be evil. You understand how this works because you've experienced it. You perceive the world around you You look at other people. You look at other things. You consider God, His creation, the circumstances of your life, the possibilities that are before you. You perceive these things uh, oftentimes with your physical parts, your eyes, your ears, your brain. And you think rationally about what you have taken in with the mind, but you then are moved towards that which you perceive to be good, beautiful and praiseworthy, and you are moved away from or repulsed by that which you perceive to be bad, ugly, and evil. I don't want to be misunderstood here either. I'm not saying that we are always aware of these workings within the soul. In fact, rarely do we consider them. These things happen continuously and in a kind of subconscious way. And neither am I saying that these things happen in a mechanical way so that we can rigidly break down every action of ours into clearly defined steps. We are, again, very complex creatures, body and soul. But these things do happen These things do happen. This is how we take in the world around us. This is how we process things. This is how we are then moved towards some things and away from others. It all happens through the body and in the soul. We process all that we encounter in this world through the body and with the mind. And then we are moved towards that which we perceive to be good and away from that which we perceive to be evil with the affections Affections are a part of the soul of man. You have body parts and you have soul parts. And I am saying that the affections are one part of the soul of man. Maybe you can anticipate what I'm about to say. Just as the mind of man must be renewed by God through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit to enable men to believe in Christ, And just as the mind of those in Christ must be progressively sanctified if our faith and obedience is to increase, so too the affections must be regenerated and sanctified if our faith and obedience is to increase. All that I am here saying presupposes that you have heard about man's 
fall into sin and the corruptions that have come upon man, body and soul, as a result. Perhaps you've heard it said before that man is totally depraved. You've heard that terminology before. What is meant by that when we say that man is totally depraved? We mean that man, because of his fall into sin, has fallen into a corrupt state. His body is given over to sin and death, and his soul has been given over to sin and death too. Fallen man has a mind, but the mind is corrupted. We do not naturally know God, but are blind and ignorant now that we are fallen into sin. And fallen man has affections too. These faculties or these parts of man were not obliterated or annihilated by the fall. Instead, they were corrupted. Fallen men and women do still perceive and process the world around them. They are then moved by their affections towards that which they perceive to be good and beautiful and away from that which they perceive to be evil. But what is the problem with fallen man as it pertains to their affections? The problem is that in sin, to one degree or another, fallen man is drawn towards that which is evil and is in fact repulsed by that which is good, namely God and His ways. Does fallen man have affections? Yes, they do. They're bent out of shape. They're distorted. They're twisted. They're depraved. They lead them in the wrong way. They lead them into sin. And here I am saying that in regeneration and in sanctification, God straightens our affections out so that we, more and more, as we mature in Christ, are drawn to the good and repulsed by that which is truly evil. Thirdly, consider the will this is the third part of the soul of man. Man is body and soul. And in the, soul, in the soul we may distinguish between the mind, the affections, and the will. What is the will then? The will is that part of the soul of man which chooses to think, speak, and do. The will chooses to act. We speak often of the need we have for a renewed mind. We speak often of the need that we have for renewed affections. We often refer to the affections as the heart. But our will needs to be renewed and sanctified too. And so I return to that previous point. We must develop, develop strong wills, brothers and sisters. Again, I do fear being misunderstood. I'm not encouraging you to be independent from God. I'm not encouraging you to be radically self-sufficient. Instead, I am exhorting you to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, Ephesians 6.10. In Christ, by the grace of God and with the help of the Holy Spirit, develop willpower, develop self-control. Paul listed that as a fruit of the Spirit, remember in Galatians 5.22-23. So yes, in Christ, by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we must learn to daily put off the old self and put on the new. How do we do that? It's... Through self-control. I'm going to put off the old. I'm going to put off the new. I'm going to choose to do this. We must choose to walk by the Spirit and to gratify uh, the desires of the flesh no longer. We must learn to endure temptation. Temptation from the evil one, from the sinful world around us, and even from the corruptions that remain within us. By choosing to think, say, and do that which is good and well-pleasing to God. 
and by refusing all that is contrary to Him. Yes, uh, to be sanctified in Christ Jesus in the mind and heart. This is very crucial. But here I am belaboring this point. Do not forget about the will. Do not forget about the call of God that is upon you to be self-controlled in Christ Jesus, to choose the good and to refuse that which is evil. Christ has redeemed your will too, brothers and sisters, and the Holy Spirit has renewed and is sanctifying your will even still. So what does all of this have to do with the Ten Commandments in general and with the Tenth Commandment in particular? In general, those in Christ Jesus are called to obey God's moral law. And the good news is that in Christ Jesus, our sins have not only been forgiven, but we have been freed from bondage to sin and are able now to keep God's law. Though temptations and corruptions remain within us, we have been set free. We have been made able to keep God's law. We've been set free in Christ Jesus and are called now to walk in obedience to Him. And I am wanting you here to understand how obedience works. We will obey God in Christ Jesus if our minds are renewed, if our affections are renewed, and if our wills are strong and sanctified. And in particular, I want you to see that the Tenth Commandment is somewhat unique in that it directly addresses not our words or actions, but our hearts. Yes, each one of the Ten Commandments must be kept from the heart. This we know. But the others are explicitly about behavior, words, deeds. Whereas this commandment, the Tenth, demands that we keep the heart pure and free from evil desires. The other commandments must be kept from the heart. This Tenth Commandment, though, is about the heart. It is about the heart. The Tenth Commandment is, You shall not covet. Quoted in full, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. To covet is to desire to have what others have as your own. Covetousness is a desire, isn't it? Where does it reside? It resides within the heart. It's not a word, it's not a deed, it is a desire. To covet is to desire what others have as your own. And covetousness is no weak desire. Instead, it is strong. It is an inordinate or excessive desire to have what others have as your own. Covetousness is a strong desire. Or if you'd prefer, it is a strong affection or passion. To look at what someone else has and to say, Oh, that's nice. I'd like to have one of those someday. Is not necessarily covetous. But to look upon what others have and to envy them and to desire what is there strongly and passionately to the point of discontent in the heart, that is covetousness. Notice that covetousness is not a word that we speak or a deed that we do. Instead, it is a condition of the mind and of the heart. It's a soul issue, you see. All of the other commandments, again, are to be obeyed from the heart, but the tenth commandment is about the heart. The command, you shall not covet, it addresses the heart directly. And do not miss the significance of the tenth commandment, brothers and sisters. First of all, notice that the 
commandments conclude with one that addresses the heart directly. This is the tenth of the ten. And it is as if God has burrowed down into us with His law. He began by addressing the most important things, the worship of God and the way that we are to love Him. He moved on from there to other important things, namely the love we are to have for our neighbor. But in the tenth commandment, He burrows down into our hearts. It's as if He concludes these ten words with this word, keep your hearts pure. Do all of this. Do all of this. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do all of this, but be sure that you keep your hearts pure. Obey God in word and in deed, but do it from the heart. Keep your hearts pure before me, the Lord says. And two, if we read the Ten Commandments backwards, if we read the Ten Commandments backwards from ten up to one, it will help us to see that it is the violation of the tenth commandment in the heart that produces violations of all the others in word or in deed. I think this is true of all the other commandments in one way or another, but it's obviously true of the sin of theft and of the sin of adultery. Why do men and women steal from others? except that they have first coveted what others have in their hearts? Why do men and women break their marriage vows by being unfaithful, except that they have coveted someone else, someone not theirs, perhaps the wife or husband of another? It is this sin of covetousness in the heart that produces all of these other sins, And brothers and sisters, I am here warning you in this sermon, and I think God's law is warning us, that if we allow covetousness to develop and reside within our hearts, then it will produce these other sins. If the covetousness were repelled, if it were rooted out from the heart, then we would not commit these other sins, but would be faithful to God in these other ways. We would not steal or be unfaithful to the wife of our youth. The sin of covetousness is the seed. It germinates in the heart. Left unchecked, it sprouts and grows into other sins. As James says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. So you can see that James speaks in the same way that I have spoken this morning concerning human behavior, concerning how human behavior works. It is this evil desire within that is the seed and it will sprout and it will eventually give birth to sin and bring forth death. As has been my custom in this sermon series on the Ten Commandments, I'll now ask the question, what does the Tenth Commandment require and forbid? And I'll read the Baptist Catechism this morning and also the Orthodox Catechism for an answer. What is required in the Tenth Commandment? Listen carefully to the answer. The Tenth Commandment requireth full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit towards our neighbor and all that is his. 
What is forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment forbiddeth all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor, and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Now the Orthodox Catechism, question 132. What is God's will for you in the Tenth Commandment? Answer, that not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any one of God's commandments, should ever arise in my heart. Rather, with all my heart, I should always hate sin and take pleasure in whatever is right. A beautiful answer to the question, what is God's will for us in the Tenth Commandment? Notice three things about these answers. One, the Baptist Catechism says that it is contentment that is required and discontentment that is forbidden in the Tenth Commandment. So what is the relationship between covetousness and contentment? That should be the question in your mind now. They're very similar things. They share this in common. Those who covet... And those who are discontent, they are dissatisfied inwardly. They have dissatisfaction in their souls. Those who are covetous and discontent are not at peace inwardly. They lack joy. They are unsettled. They are unhappy. How then do covetousness and discontentment differ? Well, the one who covets looks around and says, If only I had what they have then I would be satisfied. The covetous person looks at others, other human beings, and desires to have what they have, and they think, if only I had what they have, those possessions, that much money, that family, that spouse, etc. If only I had what they have, I would be inwardly at peace. I would be satisfied. The one who is discontent, though, is dissatisfied before God. It seems to me that all who covet are also discontent. All who covet, they are also discontent before God. And most who are discontent before God, they do also covet. Our catechism first says, the tenth commandment requireth full contentment with our own condition, Because this is the deeper heart issue. Contentment is the deeper heart issue. Contentment before God is the issue. If you are content before God, you will not covet, in other words. And then our catechism continues saying, with a right and charitable frame of spirit towards our neighbor and all that is his. You see, if we would be content before God, if we would be satisfied in Him and with what He has given to us in this life, then... We would not covet what others have. We would have a right and charitable frame of spirit towards our neighbor and all that is his. The scriptures say that godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment must be pursued by the Christian. It is a way of life that we must learn. It is a disposition of the heart that we must obtain. The secret of contentment is to be satisfied, not by the things of this world ultimately, but by God Himself. 
Everything in this world changes. Everything in this world decays. Everything rusts, fades, and will one day come to an end. So it is great folly to have your satisfaction rooted in the things of this world, even the good things of this world. Our satisfaction must not be rooted in them. This is vanity, the writer of Ecclesiastes says. Instead, we must find and root our satisfaction in God and in knowing Him through Christ, whom He has sent. For He is the source of all life, and God never changes. Brothers and sisters, He never changes. He will never fail you. And indeed, God, He has given you good things in this life, and these good things that He has given to us must be enjoyed, but not as if they were ultimate. They must be enjoyed as if they were tokens of God's love for us. They must be enjoyed to the glory of His name. As the Scriptures say, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I love that passage in James 1.17. It reminds us that there are good things in this life that we must enjoy. Where do those good things come from? They come from God. They come from His hand. Every good thing, every perfect thing comes from God. We are to enjoy these good things, but not as if they were ultimate or with, as if they were independent things, you see. Certainly not as if they were eternal things. We're to enjoy the good things of this life in a way that is fitting. And we are to do so knowing that they come from the hand of our Father in heaven. They are tokens of His love for us. So we enjoy them to the glory of God. We eat and drink to the glory of His name. And when we think of God, the Father of lights, who has given us these good gifts, we remember that with Him There is no variation or shadow due to change. There is no variation in Him. There is no change in Him. He will not decay. He will not spoil. He will not perish, but is eternal and everlasting. And so we are to enjoy even the good things of this life in God and through Christ. The remedy to all covetousness is contentment before God. And that is what the Tenth Commandment requires. If you are satisfied in God, then you will be satisfied in times of plenty and in times of want, in times of joy, and yes, even in times of sorrow. You will have that peace which surpasses understanding if your satisfaction is rooted in God and in Christ. The one who is content before God will, be able, will not be able to, to covet his neighbor's possessions For he will be preoccupied with gratitude before God, no matter his position in life. Two, notice that our catechism speaks of a frame of spirit. It describes covetousness as a frame of spirit. The tenth commandment requires full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit towards our neighbor and all that is his. In the next question, motions and affections are mentioned. The tenth commandment forbiddeth all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor, and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Inordinate means excessive or extreme. 
The one who is content will not covet, and the one who avoids covetousness maintains a right and charitable frame of spirit towards his neighbor and all that is his. He puts to death, in other words, inordinate, excessive, and extreme motions and affections to anything that is his neighbor's. In other words, the one who is content and the one who avoids the sin of covetousness keeps his soul pure. That is what we are being called to do here, brothers and sisters. In the Tenth Commandment, the Lord is saying to us, Keep your soul pure. Be careful to keep your heart. Be aware of these motions, these affections within you. Keep them in check. Keep them in their proper bounds. Do not allow them to overrun and to become ungodly. Do not allow yourself to be drawn to that which is evil, but instead be drawn to that which is good. Covetousness is a sin of the heart. It has to do with our frame of spirit. It has to do with our motions and our affections within us. Three, the Orthodox Catechism applies the Tenth Commandment very broadly. Considering the Tenth in the context of the other nine, it says that this commandment forbids us from having the slightest thought or desire contrary to any one of God's commandments. These should not arise in our hearts. Here I am paraphrasing. Rather, with, with all my heart, uh, the Orthodox Catechism says, I should always hate sin and take pleasure in what is right. Remember how the affections work? They are drawn towards that which we perceive to be good and beautiful. They are repulsed by that which we perceive to be evil. In our sinful condition, those affections are all out of sorts. We're actually drawn towards evil and repulsed by good. But in Christ Jesus, that has all been renewed. We've been enabled to keep God's law from the heart. And so the 10th commandment here is calling the Christian to, in the heart, hate what is evil and to cling to what is good. The Tenth Commandment requires us to keep our hearts pure before God and man. We are to be content before God. We are to be satisfied in Him. No matter our condition, we are to be grateful. And as we move now towards suggestions for application and then the conclusion to this sermon, I'd like to read Baptist Catechism 87 and Orthodox Catechism 133 and 134. I think this will help us to transition to application. Baptist Catechism 87 asks, Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God, the tenth and all the others? Is any man able to perfectly keep the commandments of God? The answer is bad news, in fact. And this bad news does prepare us for the gospel. No mere man, no mere man, you know who that's making exception for, Christ Jesus, our Lord, the God-man, the Messiah, No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but daily break them in thought, word, and deed. I read this to you to remind you that God's law sets a high standard for us. It sets the standard for holiness. We are to pursue it, but we fall short of it. Even in Christ, even in Christ, we need a Savior in other words. We need the gospel, the good news that there is the forgiveness of sins available to us through faith in Christ. Now listen to Orthodox Catechism question 133. 
But can those converted by God obey these commandments perfectly? It's a good question too. Are we, who have been converted by God, who have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, who have faith in Christ, are we able to keep these commandments perfectly? Listen to the answer. No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some of God's commandments. Will we ever obtain to perfection in this life as it pertains to the moral law of God? We say, no, corruptions remain within us. We will always struggle with sin. But nevertheless, we must pursue holiness and we should expect to make progress in all of these things in Christ Jesus to one degree or another. Question 134 of the Orthodox Catechism then asks, No one in this life can obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. Why then... Does God want them preached so pointedly? They've been preached pointedly in the previous weeks, brothers and sisters. I think this is right. If we cannot keep them perfectly, then why are they to be preached so directly? Answer. First, so that the longer we live, the more we, come, we may come to know our sinfulness and the more eagerly look to Christ for forgiveness of sins and righteousness. That is the first answer given. When these, when these laws are preached pointedly, do they not make you more and more aware of your sin? They do. We think to ourselves, I've fallen short of this. I've been guilty of covetousness. I've been guilty of discontent, not only before Christ, but even after Christ. Even in Christ, I have struggled to maintain a contentment within my heart. So what do we do? Do we walk away from God and Christ in shame? No, we run back to Him again and again. Our appreciation for the grace of God shown to us in Christ grows and grows. Our awareness of our need for Him increases also. Our love for God increases because we see how vile our sin is. We contemplate what our sin deserves. God's grace becomes even more glorious to us as we consider these things. Second, I continue reading the answer to Orthodox Catechism 134. So that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. This is speaking of progressive sanctification. We are going to be renewed in the inner man, progressively throughout the whole of our life here on earth. As we sojourn, we should grow in holiness. And when will we reach our goal, the goal of perfection? It will be after this life, that is to say, in the life to come. Don't you long for that day? Don't you long for that day when this work that God has begun in us will be completed? Don't you long for that day when the heavens and earth are filled with God's people who have been perfectly renewed in mind, in affection, and in will. So that all who are there in the new heavens and new earth, the, the, the temple of God, they think only what is true. Their affections are all sorted out and straightened up so that they are drawn only to that which is good and beautiful and true. 
And so that their wills choose only to do that which is good and well-pleasing to the Lord. Don't you long for that day? I long for that day. And that is why in the new heavens and new earth there will be no possibility for sin. There will be no possibility for sin because those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, those brought safely home into their eternal inheritance will be perfected inwardly in the, in the soul. Body and soul, they will be there in the new heavens and new earth and they will, they will worship and serve God faithfully and perfectly in body and soul forever and ever because they will have been perfected by virtue of the work that Christ has done for us. We should long for that day. Until then, we should strive for holiness with the strength that God provides. I have a few suggestions for application for you. One, though it is true that the Tenth Commandment requires us to maintain our minds and our affections before God and in relation to our fellow man, I have also emphasized in this sermon the need to develop a strong and holy will, that is to say, self-control. So I say to you again, develop self-control, brothers and sisters. You say, he is really on this, isn't he? He will not let it go. Develop self-control. There's a reason for this. Do I want your minds to be renewed by the Word of God so that you think what is true? Yes. What about your affections? Do I want your affections to be sanctified uh, so that we only desire what is good and we hate that it was evil? Yes, but it's not going to happen perfectly in this life. You will be tempted by the evil one, by the world, by the corruptions that remain in you. What then? What then? What then when everything in you is saying, do what is evil? What then when your passions arise within you and say, do what is evil? What then? You must have strong wills. You must have self-control. Self-control by the grace of God. Self-control enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. The truth of the matter is that you will be tempted. You will be tempted. And you must learn in Christ Jesus. We all must learn in the moment of temptation to resist. We must learn to choose what is good and reject what is evil. This is one of the benefits of fasting. When we fast from food for a time or from some other good and desirous thing, we learn to say no to our appetites and desires in a safe way. Scriptures have a lot to say about fasting. We fast so that we might pray. That is true. But I think we are to fast also to develop self-control. We are to fast so that we might learn to put the desires of the flesh to death in a safe way. What are we being tempted to do but to eat food, you see? There's nothing wrong with eating food, nothing sinful in it. But what do you feel inwardly when you're hungry? Do not desires arise within you? Does not everything within you say, go to the refrigerator, open it up, cook something good and eat it now? Your flesh cries out saying, feed me. And when you are fasting and when you are praying, what are you doing except putting the desires of the flesh to death? In the inner man and with the will, you say no. Affections say this, will says no. No, no. You're developing self-control. You're developing willpower. I don't think it is the only benefit of fasting, but I think it is one of them. When we fast, we devote ourselves to prayer. When we fast, we also develop self-control. Self-control is needed in this world, given the realities of temptation. You know, there's a little bit out there on um, 
I don't even know who, I don't know actors' names, I can't remember any of this stuff, but it's about a psychology, a psychologist, a counselor has someone in their office on the couch, you know, and, and the, the, the counselee is saying, here is, my, here is my problem, here is what I'm struggling with, and the counselor continues to say over and over again, stop it, stop it, stop it. And it's a funny bit, it's a joke, it seems absurd, because any counselor worth their salt is going to go deeper than that, They're not just going to say, stop it, over and over again. And it's funny, because it's extreme. But here I'm saying to you, there is some virtue, some value, for a pastor to say to a congregant, stop it. Don't sin anymore. Stop putting up with this. Yes, do we need to talk about the mind? Do we need to talk about the affections? Yes, we do. But stop it. Here is what God's law commands. Now live in obedience to Him. Stop putting up with your sin. Stop saying such vile things. Stop doing such vile things. Develop self-control. Secondly, be careful in your looking. Be careful in your looking. By this I mean two things. One, be careful with what you look at. And be careful with how you look at what you look. Be careful with what you look at. There are some things that are inherently evil that God's people should never look at. I want you to remember the words of Christ. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. What is He doing here except warning His people to be careful in their looking We perceive the world around us through the eye. If we are taking in dark and evil things, do not be surprised if your soul grows dark and evil. And be careful with how you look at what you look at. Some things are not evil to look at, but they become evil when we look at them with an evil eye. You know, I was driving with my three children the other day, and sometimes they get a sermon ahead of time. I was talking with them about this principle. I said, look at that Jeep up there. It was a very nice Jeep. I said to them, is there anything wrong with me looking at that Jeep and saying, that's a nice Jeep. I like that color. I'm happy for that person that they were able to get that, etc. Maybe even to say, maybe someday I'll have one of those. I don't really want one, but you know what I mean for the point of illustration. We say, no, there's no sin in that. But if I had an evil eye, you may see Mark 7.22 and Proverbs 28.22 in the New King James Version to find that phrase. And if I were to look at that Jeep with an evil eye and with envy in my heart and mind, then that would be sin. That would be the sin of covetousness. And that sin, left unchecked, will produce all kinds of unrighteousness. So be careful with what you look at and with how you look at the things you look at. Be careful with how you think about God, the world around you and your place in it, lest you be overrun by discontentment and covetousness. Brothers and sisters, take this principle and apply it to other things besides jeeps that you see on the highway. It applies to everything. These things, the sins of discontentment and covetousness, are a deadly cancer to the soul. They're not to be played with. Lastly, keep your heart, brothers and sisters, lest you sin against your neighbor and deny your God. You must tend to the garden of your soul. You must. You must think about how you think. You must reflect upon how you feel. 
you must, by God's grace and with the help He supplies, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That is Colossians 3.5. Do not only or merely put the external sins to death by willing to do that which is good and pleasing to God, but put the heart sins to death too. You must. You must tend to the garden of your soul. You must get rid of the sin, whatever it is, root and all. Tend to the garden of your soul, brothers and sisters, because left alone, your soul will be overrun by weeds. But with God's help by His Word and Spirit, the Christian has what he or she needs to walk worthily before God from the heart, in thought, in word and deed. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And all of God's people say, let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in Heaven, help us in this. Help us to be content before You. Help us not to covet. May we be satisfied in You, O God. May we enjoy the good things of this life that you have given to us as tokens of your love and to the glory of your name. O Lord, help us to keep our hearts pure so that we do not sin against you. And when we are tempted severely, when the evil one, the world around us, and the corruptions that remain within us draw us away from you and towards evil, give us the strength to resist, to refuse that which is evil, and to choose that which is good and well-pleasing to you. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.